Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. The court is on its winter break for several weeks, but we still have to work for a living, so we're going to talk about some stuff. This week, we're looking at some non-decision decisions at the court. What does that mean? We'll explain. Start with impeachment. Kimberly, why are we talking about impeachment on this Supreme Court podcast? Well, Jordan, you're right that the Constitution gives Congress the, quote, sole power over impeachment, and we are a SCOTUS podcast. But it also says when the official being tried is the president of the United States, the chief justice shall preside. And the reason that the Constitution has this kind of setup is that the officer who normally presides over impeachment, the head of the Senate, is in line uh, for the presidential succession. So there could be a potential conflict of interest there uh, and one that is not present when the person being tried is a former president. So there's this question about whether the Senate can even try a former president, but Kimberly, focusing on the part that affects the court, or court personnel anyway, we learned that the Chief Justice has declined to preside this time, right? Uh, We did, but we didn't learn it from the Chief Justice. Instead, we learned it from Chuck Schumer, uh, who gave an interview on MSNBC, and he actually said that the Constitution says that the Chief Justice is supposed to preside over a sitting president and that it was up to Roberts whether or not he wanted to preside, but, quote, He doesn't want to do it. Uh, So uh, instead, Patrick Leahy, the most senior senator in the majority, will preside. And the chief justice himself, uh, through the court's press office, actually declined several requests to comment on why it is that he's not presiding. What's the effect of the chief's decision not to preside here? Well, I guess it depends if you're talking about the effect legally or the effect politically. So uh, politically, we've seen many Republicans uh, pointing to the lack of the chief justice as proof that the process itself is illegitimate. And Senator Rand Paul is probably the best example. Here's him speaking on the Senate floor earlier this week. If we are about to try to impeach a president, where is the chief justice? If the accused is no longer president, where is the constitutional power to impeach him? Private citizens don't get impeached. Impeachment is for removal from office. And the accused here has already left office. So I don't know, Jordan, what do you think about the fact that uh, the chief justice is refusing to explain uh, his position? Well, as sort of a running theme here on the podcast that we've been talking about, I think in general, it would always be good for the court to explain itself, whether it's the majority or the dissent, and especially some of these shadow docket rulings that they've been handing down or effectively handing down without actually deciding. So in some ways, this is another example of that, something that isn't coming up in an argued case, but it's a effectively a decision that's being made. And as Paul Clement said, no great critic of the court. I think the chief just made some super interesting constitutional law. Um, there's no explanatory decision that goes with it. Um, you know, my view is it, you know, it, it didn't get to the Supreme Court and probably wouldn't because of the political question doctrine. We can talk more about that later if we have time. But I think the chief has just made clear that he reads that clause as being specific to the current president of the United States. So anyways, I I just find it super interesting um, that, you know, by making this decision and again, without at least 
based on what I've seen so far, any explanation for it. Um, he really is making some pretty interesting constitutional law. Clement wasn't necessarily criticizing the chief justice so much, but just noting the impact of his decision. But it would be good if there was some official explanation to accompany that. So that's the political effect, Kimberly, that we talked about a bit. And presumably, if the chief was presiding, there'd be some other type of objection. I don't think that would have been the last of the political sideshow to this. But what about the practical effect here? Does it actually matter in how this proceeding is going to be conducted that it's not the chief sitting up there? Uh, well, legally, no, not really. So we saw that the role is really uh, a some ceremonial one. Uh, so that's what we saw of Roberts during the first impeachment, and where probably the most consequential decision that he made was the fact that he wasn't going to break any ties. So making it clear that he intended to be of zero consequence. Um, and he was largely there to keep up the decorum. So uh, we talked about on this podcast, yeah, how he admonished both sides in equal measure. I think it is appropriate at this point for me to admonish uh, both the House managers and the President's counsel in equal terms uh, to remember that they are addressing the world's greatest deliberative body. One reason it has earned that title is because its members avoid speaking in a manner and using language that is not conducive to civil discourse. Um, in the 1905 Swain trial, a senator objected when one of the managers used the word pettifogging and the presiding officer said the word ought not to have been used. I don't think we need to aspire to that high a standard, but I do think those addressing the Senate should remember where they are. And I think importantly, Jordan, any issues that are of real consequence that are debated are going to be submitted to the full Senate for a vote. So so it isn't like a real trial where the adjudicator can make a lot of difference. Here, the Senate is going to decide whether or not Trump is convicted, regardless of who presides over the proceeding. So Jordan, we mentioned at the top that this isn't the only case this week where the Supreme Court decided something without deciding something. Yeah. So on Monday morning, we were sitting there awaiting a nice batch of opinions. We had the prospect of a new week in front of us, a new day. The wind was at our backs. But they handed down just one opinion, and it wasn't even really an opinion at all. It was a case that was dismissed as improvidently granted, or a dig for short. Kimberly, What's a dig? <laughs> a dig is where the court says, oops, sorry, we didn't mean to make you spend all this time and money. We really shouldn't have heard this case. Uh, so a lot of times there's some procedural hitch uh, that's keeping the justices from deciding the mayor's decision. But all in all, the court really doesn't like to do it. And we think that that's, you know, they've taken some steps like relisting in order to try to prevent that. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes it happens. Yeah, and so this dig came in the case of Henry Schein against Archer and White Sales. It's an arbitration case that we've talked about on the podcast before multiple times because it was a case that was back of the court previously, and apparently once was enough, and the justices had second thoughts this time around, and this possibility was actually foreshadowed at the argument itself, which happened all the way back in December. Here's Justice Alito at the argument questioning Archer and White's lawyer, Daniel Geyser. Mr. Geyser, I want to ask you for help with a problem that is not at all your fault. It's our fault because we didn't 
in any way it's our responsibility. I won't say fault because we didn't grant the cross petition. But because we didn't grant the, pro- the cross petition, uh, I want you to assume that we are not going to decide the question that you wanted us to decide in the cross petition. And Kimberly, arguing on the other side of this case was our friend Canon Shanmigam, who we had on the podcast last month talking about all the staggering number of cases that he convinced the justices to review. And this was one of them in the petition that was just dismissed. I guess we should take back some of our congratulations then. Maybe, although is it really a testament to Cannon's persuasiveness that he got the court to take a case that they realized after the fact they didn't actually even want to? So the dismissal, the effect of it anyway, of this non-decision, decision, decision, whatever it is, it upholds the lower court win for Geyser. There you go. And uh, that wasn't it. The Supreme Court really wanted to solidify our topic for the week on this podcast. So we got another decision, non-decision, right, Jordan? Correct. Another punt on this boring Monday. This one, probably legally unavoidable by this point, came in the emoluments cases. These are the disputes regarding allegations that former President Trump was unlawfully profiting from foreign and state government officials while in office, including through his D.C. hotel. Both sides had actually agreed that the case was moot by now, so there was no real controversy as to what the justices did, but the impact was Trump effectively running out the clock on that one and there being no Supreme Court decision on this contested emoluments issue. Well, great. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, The Supreme Court is out on a break. They will return on February 19th for a private conference and retake the virtual bench on February 22nd. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres' killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen.